Welcome to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. An ongoing conversation with ministry leaders about embracing complexity and uncertainty with joy and faithfulness. Hello, everyone. This is Beth Daniel, and today I am here with my friend and colleague, Alan Hilton. I met Alan at a wedding of all places about three years ago, and I've been privileged to get to know him and grateful for his ministry. I've come to know Alan as a person who has a brilliant mind, a servant's heart, and a very unique call and vision for ministry. He is an ordained minister who earned his MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary and his PhD from Yale Divinity School, and he has served as a pastor in various churches and as a New Testament scholar at St. Mary's College of California and at Yale Divinity School. But it is his current work that we're here to talk about. Alan is the executive director of House United, a nonprofit initiative he founded in 2016. He travels around the nation to help people in churches, schools, corporations, and other groups learn to collaborate and build community, even though they may vote differently in elections. Alan's book, A House United, How the Church Can Save the World, suggests that faith communities should be an active part of the solution to political polarization. Alan, it is so good to have you. Thank you for taking time to chat with me today about your convictions and your work. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Beth. So political polarization and division seems to be affecting every aspect of our lives together right now and tearing us apart. And many of us feel hopeless and don't know what to do, but you decided to move towards the problem and particularly towards finding solutions. So tell me a little bit about what you do and how on earth you ended up in this vocation. Yeah, I made it up. Thank you. I made it up because there seemed to be nobody doing this. It was probably 2014, I was feeling this sort of seismic rise in the amount of polarization, in the severity of cross-difference language and abuse. And I started to do courageous conversations in the church where I was serving in Minneapolis, in the Twin Cities area. And they worked. People talking to one another about hot-button issues, and they got in a room and there were no fatalities. Actually, the first one I ever did was in 2012 when the marriage amendment was on the ballot as a referendum in the state of Minnesota, and the whole city was buzzing about it, and we decided just to let our people talk about it and have some guidelines and rules for how to do that, and we had 425 people come, (laughs) and that's when we realized maybe people need a place to talk to one another. And in the next couple of years, I developed a way of doing that. It was in 2015, 2016, though, that I decided maybe rather than staying in this one place and helping these thousand on a Sunday kind of church people, maybe I could help other people and we could get a little bit of a movement going because it's going to take more than one church to do this. So in 2016, I started doing what I had been doing in Minnesota at different churches and different organizations around the nation. And that involved a couple or three things. My main ministry outlet is these conversations, whether they happen with 425 people or, as we recently did at Covenant Presbyterian in Austin, 290 people or a family or a small group or however the magnitude or whatever the size, we just try to get people listening well to one another and speaking well to one another so that we can actually make progress in understanding one another. 
Courageous conversations are not decision-making operations. So I don't go into a church and say, what do you want your vision to be? This is controversial. Let's talk about it. And at the end of the hour, we'll have a decision. It's not the church is going to hang a flag on what we decide today, because we aren't deciding anything. We're just talking. It's dialogue. It's not directional. And it happens best if there is no direction, if it's just good conversation that leads to understanding so that the next thing, the decision, can be made well. So what I do is go from church to church and coach pastors on how to preach, teach, and pray among their people with a large enough we to understand who's in the pews so that I'm not praying as if half the nation's politics are not in the room. And I'm not preaching as if I don't know that the person in Pew 13 believes what she believes. So coaching pastors, holding and facilitating these conversations, training people to do the conversations after I leave, because it's sort of a Pauline vision of ministry. I go into a place and I set up shop and facilitate for a little bit, maybe two or three times. And by the end of that, I hope to have leaders in place who can continue facilitating so they can do these conversations after I'm not there anymore. So that's a broad scope of what I do on the ground. And I've been doing it since before 2016, because we did it in Minnesota, but doing it as my day job since then. Wow. I mean, those courageous conversations are so important, but so scary to so many of us to even go there. So thank you for moving into that ministry with eyes wide open. I'm sure it's not an easy ministry. And so what is the hardest part about your job? And then what is the most satisfying? Yeah. So a year and a half ago, I had a stretch of time during which I was starting to get down, and I'm a pretty up person. I'm a pretty optimistic person. I'm a pretty hopeful person, and my general tenor in the world is I'll find the silver lining. But I started to get down, and Liz, my wife, who is one of the most discerning people I know in the world, one day sat me down and said, you're lonely. You're lonely. And that's the downside, because when you hold the middle, when you and I don't mean middle politically, I mean, hold a room in a way that allows everybody to talk. And when it's a high premium on not sharing what you what I believe, it gets lonely. Because I don't have a people in that room. I am the facilitator of people who might belong to one another, according to tribes or otherwise. So I've done some things to take measures to uh, find my people in another way, but loneliness is the downside. I had a person who aspires to do this kind of work, a woman in Connecticut who heard me speak and came up the second time I was there. And she said, Alan, I had this vision. I had a vision from God that I was standing next to the Jordan River and I went in to be baptized with the rest of the people. And... God said, no, go out to the middle. It's a harder place to be, but you need to be there. And that kind of encapsulates, it's a rugged thing to be in the middle of the Jordan rather than up on the shore with other people who have just been baptized or are waiting for them. It's a different thing to hold the middle space. So that's the hard thing. The joys are multitudinous. To see a group of people wide-eyed at the end of an hour after they've talked about the hardest things in our land to talk about wide-eyed and expectant for another time of doing it, because they realize they don't hate the people they thought they hated. They hear one another. 
example. I did one in Scottsdale, actually, at a church, Pinnacle Presbyterian Church, on climate change. And they were getting rough with one another. I like it when people have conflict, but if it goes to a place where I think it's getting out of hand, I'll stop everybody and give them a minute or 90 seconds just to do some imagining or pausing. And so I asked them, spend 60 to 90 seconds and imagine the person who's on the other side of this issue from you. And so I did. And at the end, there was a woman I noticed in the back whom I knew well, who was just sobbing. And I said, Elizabeth, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I know you well enough. Would you be willing to share what's going on? And she said, I am an advocate for addressing climate change. I'm a person who so wants that to happen. And I thought about the West Virginia miner who is barely keeping food on the table for his family, and I am putting him out of a job if I win. And I am concerned about three or four generations. This guy can only think about one. He can only think about the people who are next to him. And so I didn't change my view. I just changed the way I think about the people on the other side of my view. And that's a big win. And whenever I see it happening, sometimes less articulated, but whenever I see that happening, it feels like Jesus's prayer that we all may be one is breaking out a bit. And that's the thing I live to see realized. Thank you. That's very powerful. Yes, this desire to win so often impedes our ability to listen. And we know this, but it's so hard when you're in the middle of those courageous conversations and feel so passionately about your point of view. So what does it look like in a congregation when this vision of unity, this vision of seeing the other as a bearer of the image of God, as seeing each other as brothers and sisters, what does it look like when that kind of John 17 vision takes hold in a congregation? Yeah, it's a great question. The part of it is what I just observe. The Elizabeths of the world get better at engaging the minors of the world within congregations. And I see that happen. I hear that report from pastors. And the crazy conversations get better. They have better and better ones of these. And I'll give you an example in a second. But also the board meetings get better and the family conversations get better. There's a ripple throughout the rest of life because we don't realize how many areas of our lives are dictated by polarization or at least the habit that polarization has put in play of disqualifying other views. And that matters for the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. It matters for whether we're going to Disney World or Niagara Falls for our vacation. It's a way of being. And so places where this is happening on the ground move through that stage and into a realization, you know, maybe we want to take this to the streets, because we're getting better at talking to one another, and that's a golden commodity in our society. Let's figure out how we can seep this out into our neighborhoods and into our families, and maybe we'll make a mark. And so the communication habits of churches get better. Let me give one example that's a pretty inspiring one that has both those parts in it. I was doing work in Wellesley, Massachusetts at a church that was mostly blue, politically blue, and yet they wanted me to come because the whole town isn't and their whole setting isn't. So we did two or three conversations over the course of three months, and then came a hubbub in the town. town of Wellesley couldn't figure out Columbus Day. 
Do we celebrate Columbus Day? Do we not celebrate it? Do we celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day? Do we not celebrate it? Do we both? Neither. And the town council essentially couldn't make a decision. They were up in arms. They were shouting at each other. So they said, we're going to give this to the community. And they threw it out to the town and said, you guys figure it out. Well, the pastor with whom I had worked said, we need to get Alan in and have a conversation about this. And so we did a courageous conversation in their little chapel that had that day 120 people pinned against walls. And they talked beautifully about an issue that was tearing the town. And in the back row were advocates on both sides and two town council members, and they approached the pastor afterward and said, we need you to do more of these. We're just not good at it. So here's a church where they practiced and habits changed a bit. It wasn't all the way home, but practiced and habits changed a bit. And they did a hard issue very well, and it rippled. Mm -hmm. And that church has become a force in the town in that regard. They become a reconciling body in the town just because of the conversations they're having. I love that example, and it's so hopeful that the church can be influential in a wonderful way. So this work starts in the church because of the vision we have, the call we have to be unified and to speak the truth in love to brothers and sisters, but it goes so far beyond the walls of the church because we're also in the workplace and in companies and in schools and in the carpools and all of these kind of things that it really does change the way we live. But it starts in a faith community, and I love your hope and your belief The churches really can be this agent of change through just living out what we believe. So thank you for your work, and thank you for that vision of unity and love. But beyond the biblical calls to faithful unity, where do you experience God's presence in all of this, yeah. in all of the work that you're doing, and whether it's in town halls or little chapels or schools or companies, where do you experience God's presence in the work that you do? Yeah, that's a great question. The um, In the 29th chapter of Jeremiah, there's a passage that kind of has famous parts to it. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. But just before that comes Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. The exiles had wanted to bunker down and say, we're just going to last this out. They've been forced marched away from their city. They've watched their temple and, and palace burn down, and they are just going to bunker down. Jeremiah writes them a letter from Jerusalem and says, seek the welfare of your city. Seek the welfare of your city. And the word welfare there is a translation of the Hebrew word shalom. So they wanted to bunker down and just last things out, which is a temptation for churches. We can get better at this, and we can just be good with one another. Where I see the presence of God moving is when shalom breaks out, not only in a congregation, but through a congregation. When I see people realize newly what agape love looks like, an unmerited favor that we grant to somebody else, a benefit of the doubt, is a rarity in our culture. Trust is at an all-time low in our culture. When love risks going out and engaging a cross, it looks just a lot like Jesus. It looks a lot like Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman, talking with a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, doing the things that move the needle in community, that widen the we of community. 
And so when it looks like Jesus, I figure God's up to it, right? (laughs) This is something God is generating, and something swells inside, not only me, but the people around, and and we get this sense, whatever else is happening here, God is in this place. At all the levels you mentioned, in a family, when I see a family reconciled, when I see a church reconciled, when I see people in all parts of culture finding a way forward, it's God's footprint or fingerprint that I see. Thank you. That's powerful. So I'm sure there are many people listening who, first of all, identify with the loneliness you named. So thank you for naming that. That's something that so many pastors feel Mm. as they try and hold these polarized congregations together. We may not have access to an Alan Hilton to come in and be that third party. So if someone's listening right now and knows there is a need to bring people together but have no idea where to start, what would you say? Yeah, that's an important question. I am working from my side. I'm working on materials that can be used when I'm not in the building and sort of videos and training processes. But what I recommend as a starting point is finding a pastor, if it's pastors you're talking about, finding a pastor who is on the other side of some divide and getting coffee. Because a pastor might be able to summon a congregation to start working on this, but not very well if she or he is not doing it themselves. And so I would start with a first gesture of reconciliation, then begin to find resources, and I'll have some of them. Braver Angels has some good ones, but find a way to begin the process rather than saying, this just won't work. It's too big a thing. Because my experience is that every single drop in the ocean changes things. Thank you, Alan. I so appreciate your time. I love the name of your organization, A House United. I love the tagline, How the Church Can Save the World. May it be so. Thank you so much, Alan, for joining us today. Thank you, Beth. Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. A project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation. The Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities. Our producer is Marthane Sanders. To find out more about our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations and communities, visit our website at www.ministrycollaborative.org.